Well, what a beautiful way to come to this particular passage of Scripture this morning in our study of the life of Jesus as Luke gives it to us in his gospel. If you've been doing your personal worship this week, you know that we come to the end of chapter 7 and with it to a story in which Luke brings to us two different characters that first of all we're supposed to compare to each other and then secondly and most significantly we're then supposed to compare to ourselves. And here's sort of the implied question of the whole story. All right, take a good look at these two. Which one are you? That's it. And so to challenge us in regard to our need, he's going to come to us with a man, first of all, who is like really intrigued with Jesus. And we're kind of drawn to that. Like we want to pat this guy on the back. You know, we want to say right on because I mean, hey, we're intrigued by Jesus. So we're feeling pretty good about this guy until he then presents this woman. And she's completely taken by Jesus. And then we kind of go, oh, now I get it. She's the model. She's the example. All right, so she's the one that we're supposed to look more like. And so then, again, he comes to us with this man, and this man is authentically moved by Christ. Like, he is genuinely moved, but as you kind of look at him, as you examine him, as you compare him with this woman, it seems like he's mostly moved between his ears. Like, he is mostly moved in his mind, and here, too, we can really relate to this guy. Because, you know, we're moved by Jesus, And then mostly in our mind. And listen, in our mind, it's safe, isn't it? In our mind, being moved there, it's decent. In our mind, being moved there, it's orderly. Being moved like this woman, not so much, and yet she's the example. Luke comes and says, all right, mind, now let me show you heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it doesn't look decent. And it doesn't look orderly. It's not safe. So he comes to us with this guy, and this guy's willing to take calculated risks for Jesus, and I think that we can relate to that, you know, and I think that's oftentimes the way that we approach Jesus. Here is Jesus, here's his mission, here's his kingdom, here are his purposes, everything that's happening with Jesus is over here, and here we are over here with our stuff and our mission and kingdom and purposes and all of that, and we like what Jesus has going on over there, and we like Jesus, and so, you know, we want to be involved, but in a calculated sort of I can manage the risk kind of way. And so, you know what, Jesus, I'm willing to give you some of this and part with a little of that. Maybe if we reorganize, we can do this. And, you know, we kind of give all that stuff to Jesus, and that's our calculated risk. We are calculatingly involved with him and with whatever it is that he has going on. And so the problem with the story is that as we're patting that guy on the back and sort of patting ourselves at the same time, Luke ruins the moment completely by coming to us with this woman and says, no, 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 let me show you what it's supposed to look like. Here's calculated risk, and here's all in. She's all in. She's quite remarkable. So bottom line, and here's the core of it, Luke comes to us today with this man who really doesn't appreciate his great debt, oh, and the fact that it's unpayable. His great debt before God as a result of his sin and the fact that it's unpayable. He's underappreciating that, you see. And as a result, then he doesn't appreciate the sufferings and sacrifices of Jesus either, at least as much as he should. And so therefore, here's the bottom line. He loves Jesus, but only a little. This woman loves Jesus a lot. She, well, she gets it. We pick up our study today in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, where we read that one of the Pharisees, so here's the guy, okay? 
One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his house to eat with him at a formal banquet, which in that culture was really kind of a big deal. It's not like it is today. Back then, to do that was a formal way of inviting someone into a relationship with you. You're saying, I want to identify myself with you. I want to grow in relationship with you. And what makes this such a big deal is that this is a Pharisee doing this. This guy is part of the religious establishment of Israel. He's part of that group of religious leaders in Israel that stood most vehemently opposed to Jesus and in the end most violently opposed to Jesus. And yet here he is inviting Jesus to his table and not insincerely. He's not bringing him in, but, you know, sort of covertly so that he can trap him or test him or find something he can use against him. It seems as though he's inviting him sincerely to the table. And so it seems, at least, as though he's heard Jesus' gospel message and probably has believed it. The parable that Jesus tells is of two debtors, and both debts are paid. So it seems to imply, anyway that perhaps he's a man of faith, but he doesn't appreciate that salvation. Lord, I need you. Yeah, but not that much. That's kind of the deal. So he's intrigued with Jesus. He's moved in his mind mostly, and he's willing to take the calculated risk, and indeed this is a risk, of venturing his reputation by inviting Jesus to his table. And Jesus, as we see now, Accepts the invitation. For Luke says, And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and literally reclined together with that Pharisee and with all of his other guests at the Pharisee's table. And I say it that way because that's the way it literally worked. This is a wealthy man. This is a large home. It's probably in some kind of a courtyard, perhaps. And the table would have been set very low to the ground and in the shape of a U so that the servants could continuously go in and out through the center of the table and make sure that all of the guests are taken care of. Get the idea? And so what they would do, these guests, is they would recline. They would lie down on their left side on padding and pillows and whatnot, prop themselves up on their left elbow, and they would eat from the table with their feet away from the table, and another little cultural tip that'll help make sense of what happens next with this woman is that these homes and these banquets were open to the public. So pretty much anybody could come. Now, you couldn't then take your place at the table, you know, that you're not coming for dinner, you understand that, but you're coming to watch the dinner. So you could come and sit around the perimeter of these guests, around their feet, if you think about it. And as long as you're not disruptive, you could listen in. And this would have been a very intriguing dinner. I mean, here you have a Pharisee kind of making a statement. He's invited Jesus, who at this point, everybody knows. And Jesus is now going to go to the banquet at the Pharisee's house. Okay, there's nothing on television in the first century. You're going to this banquet. And so Luke says in verse 37, he says, and, and so behold, and I want to stop there. That's a word of sight. He's calling you to see this person, to imagine it. He says, behold, he goes, I want you to see this person, a woman of the city, which almost certainly means that she was a prostitute. And it was also, as Luke now tells us, a sinner, which incidentally in that day was an actual category of people. So if you were a tax collector, you were also a sinner. If you were a prostitute, you were also a sinner. Get the idea? Collect up sort of the dregs of society from the perspective of the non-sinners, that is, and then you put them all into a category called sinners, the people that Jesus 
so frequently seems to be with. So Luke wants you to see this sinner. Behold, he says, a woman of the city, a prostitute in the city that everyone knew in the city was a prostitute, okay? A sinner... Well, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she took advantage of the fact that it was open to the public and she showed up herself. And nobody appears to have noticed. She somehow wormed her way through the crowd to the feet of the Lord and she brought something with her that was very significant. Luke says she brought with her an alabaster flask of ointment. And I don't know if you know much about alabaster, but it's a soft white stone, and it contains lines. They're made of an oxide of iron. So they look like veins, is the idea. And so then if you think about it, what this stone looks like is human skin. I mean, it's no coincidence that a lot of sculptures of human beings, and particularly of their faces and so forth, are made from alabaster stone. And this is an alabaster flask, so it's a container of an ointment, and the ointment is a very expensive, very fragrant perfume, and these containers were made in such a way as to be almost make it impossible for this stuff to pour out. So they would be made with a long, narrow neck, is the idea, so that if it, even if it turned over, it wouldn't necessarily spill out, or if it did, it would only be very, very little. And I want to tell you where she would have worn this alabaster flask. It'll be momentarily uncomfortable. She wore it on a necklace between her breasts, and I want to tell you why she wore it. She wore it as part of her equipment as a prostitute. That's why. So she wore this around her neck to make herself smell more desirable to potential clients that she would then, for money, pretend to be sincerely interested in. But there's no pretending with the Lord. There's no insincerity with Him. He reads minds, as we'll see here in a moment. And so it's pretty clear at this point in the story, too, that this woman also has heard the gospel message of Jesus. And this woman also has experienced his forgiveness. And she kind of gets that. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Yeah, a lot. And so here's the deal. She's not just intrigued. She's taken. (laughs) She's not just moved in her mind. It gets messy. She's not taking a calculated risk with Jesus. You know what, Lord, I think I can afford to maybe, you know, and then I can give you a little of this, and and I feel safe with that. I feel comfortable with that. There's nothing safe about what she does. She says, what, Jesus? Okay, you know what? For what it is, I'm in. And that's the kind of love we're called to. So now notice what she does. Here's her response, verse 38. It says, And standing behind Jesus at his feet. So she's wormed her way through the crowd, somehow apparently unnoticed. She hasn't obviously been kicked out. She's standing there at the feet of Jesus. She's weeping. And then she collapses at the feet of the Lord, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. So now imagine how many tears it would take to soak someone's feet. She's not like crying a little bit. And then realizing that she has no towel with which to wipe up his messy feet. His feet were not cleaned when he came in the banquet. We'll see that. So now she's made a money mess and has no towel available. She then does something that in that culture would no woman would have done. 
If your wife did this, in that culture it was a divorceable offense. This was considered by the people at this banquet and in that culture, with the exception of Jesus and of this woman, who clearly doesn't mean it this particular way as being highly erotic, borderline pornographic by our standards today. What she did in realizing that she's made a mess of the Lord's feet and wetting them with her tears as she undoes the tresses of her hair, something that would only be done in a bedchamber and with a husband, and she wipes his feet clean with her hair. And then, notice what she does that. She kisses his feet again and again and again, and then finally she takes this alabaster flask, this thing that represents who she is, her identity, this thing that represents all that she's done, her life, and she breaks the neck of this thing, destroying it, She would have had to to get at all the ointment, and she pours out the whole of it upon the feet of the Lord. Okay, And so now just consider the reversals contained in this. Because all of a sudden, tears that were once shed by this woman, what, in bitterness, in anger, in loneliness, are being shed now in joy. Hair that was let down to seduce was let down to serve. Kisses that were given away but only for money are given away freely and only to Jesus And she's taken the very emblem of her former identity and destroyed it and poured it out upon the feet of the one in whom she has found a completely new identity. It's absolutely beautiful. And you've got to believe, you know, as you're imagining this scene, as you behold it, as Luke calls you to do, that somewhere in this process, and like this took a little while, didn't it? Somewhere in this process, the conversation at the table is over. Like nobody's talking at some point. Nobody at the table and nobody surrounding the table either. And the way that I have it figured out, I mean, at least in my imagination, I just think the Lord just lets it sit in an awkward silence. He just lets it happen, knowing everyone there is inside freaking out. And you can imagine what some of them were thinking. Here is this woman of the night, letting down her hair, Kissing the Lord's feet. What in the world? But we don't have to imagine what our friend the Pharisee was thinking because Luke tells us. Verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus to this banquet saw what this woman was doing to the feet of Jesus and, significantly, what Jesus was allowing this woman to do to his feet, he said to himself, get that in his heart, in his mind. This is his inner dialogue. He doesn't say it out loud. So he says in his heart, if this man, Jesus, were really a prophet, which is apparently what he thought Jesus must have been when he invited him to the banquet, then he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Is she? Luke says, Jesus answering him, which is brilliant. So now he's proving himself by answering the inner dialogue of this guy to be what? More than a prophet. It's highly ironic. And it seems to have been lost on this guy. Jesus answering this man's inner dialogue said to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. So do you see how he's been demoted? Prophet, teacher, So here we go. Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which was equal to about a year and a half's wages for an average daily laborer, and the other 50, so about two months of wages. 
But now notice what Jesus says next. He says, and when they what? They both could not pay. Now stop. Here's the way it worked in those days. If you owed somebody money and the debt came due and you couldn't pay it, guess where you went? You went to jail. They threw you into a debtor's prison if you couldn't pay. So now we've got somebody with a big debt and we've got somebody with a little debt, but neither can pay. So where do they both go? To the same cell. Get the idea? They get to be bunkmates. They get to face the exact same judgment, the exact same fate. It's not so much about the amount, is it? It's about our inability to pay. Simon the Pharisee has no understanding that he's incapable of paying this. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need, you know, he sings that in church, but he's really looking around going, yeah, but not as much as that person. She needs you more. Now we all do. You know, one of the things that we recognize, even as a society, is that the gravity of the offense that we commit, well, is kind of equal to the person we committed against. And I'll give you an example. It's written into our legal code. If one of you assaults me, okay, you may get in trouble. You might go to jail. You might have some legal issues. It might be a problem for you. <laughs> Try that on the president. It's a whole other ball game, is it not? It's completely different. By law, actually, different. In our sin, we commit offenses against a perfectly righteous, infinitely valuable, infinitely holy God. How great is our debt if we even do it once? It's an unpayable debt. So this moneylender, Jesus says, had two debtors. And one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. <laughs> but guess what? They both couldn't pay. So this money lender did what? Threw them into jail. No, he ate it. He absorbed the cost himself. He paid himself for the debt of both. This money lender graciously canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them, Jesus says, will love him more? And Simon answered. He said, you know, I suppose it's the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And now Jesus does something that also culturally would have been completely unacceptable. When you talked to somebody and that day you maintained eye contact, you didn't look away. To do that, it would be rude. Heck, that's rude now. But then... Hugely disrespectful. And you certainly wouldn't do it to the host of the banquet. You're his guest. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. He, still, he maintains his conversation with Simon the Pharisee, but now he looks away at this woman, greatly disrespecting, frankly, Simon the Pharisee, and greatly honoring, of all people, this woman. Luke says, then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this prostitute? It's not what he says. Do you see this sinner? No. He says, do you see this woman? He esteems her very differently. This woman who by the blood of Jesus and unbeknownst to everybody in the room except for Jesus and obviously then also for the woman has a brand new identity and it's not the one that these people ascribed to her. It's not the one she might have had, I don't know, a day ago even. All depends on when she met the Lord. 
but it's righteous and not sinner. It's forgiven and not guilty. It's clean and not dirty. It's pure and not impure. It's very different from what everybody assumes that it actually is. And so then turning toward the woman, while he continued to talk to Simon, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? And Simon says, well, yeah. And Jesus says, well, good, because now I'm going to use her as an object lesson, and I'm going to use her uninhibited, lavish, you've got to be kidding me, reckless, as though no one else is here but she and I, outpouring of love to show you your deficiencies. She's the model. She's the example. And so Jesus says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which would have been very customary in that day, the washing of the feet of the guests. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, also a common hospitality. But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which would have been a sign of great honor. But she has anointed my feet with something far more valuable, far more expensive. With this ointment, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus looked at this woman, and then after she did all that, he said, you know what, I'm going to thank you for that by declaring you forgiven. He's saying this is the outpouring of the heart of one whose sins have already been forgiven. My goodness, look at her. She gets it. She understands. And so then her sins are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, at least in his own mind, at least in his own estimation, he who undersells his great debt, and therefore then also the great cost of the Lord to forgive that debt, well, he loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So like another mind blower at the table. And everybody at the table started going, what in the world is that? Then those who were at the table, we read, with Jesus began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, they know the answer to the question. They understand that Jesus is saying who he is. Only God can forgive sins is the idea. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let me ask you. Which one are you? I mean, as you honestly look at these two and you look at yourself, I mean, do you kind of, are you more intrigued with Jesus than you are taken? Moved, but in the mind where it's safe, where it's, where it's decent, where it's, where it's orderly, where it's not messy. We're all in. Are you willing to take calculated risks for Jesus? Is that the way you engage with him? Well, Lord, I like what you got going on over here, but, you know, let me see what I can do over here. Well, I think I can do this and do this and do this and maintain my own mission in life and do this and do this and do this and do this and accomplish my own purposes in life. And I can do this and do this and do this and do this and maintain my own program in life, my plans in life. I like the way that there are a few things here that I'm doing that complement what you're doing and I'm willing to line these. Or are you just going, wow, here. What next? Do you undervalue your great and unpayable debt the way this woman did 
or the way this man did, rather, or like this woman, do you get it? Because it's the difference between love a little and love a lot. And so if you're here today and, like me, you're thinking, yeah, Simon looks maybe a little bit familiar. Um, What's the remedy? I think the remedy, and it's really fortuitous for us, in many ways is the season of Lent. I really do. I went for a walk with Beth on Tuesday night, and I said, you know, I really didn't plan out, you know, this particular passage of Scripture to happen the Sunday after Lent. I really didn't. In fact, I was kind of wondering if it would all fit together somehow. And I think it's fit together far better than I could have ever foreseen. What is Lent? It is a 40-day season of time corresponding to Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness in which we focus on a couple of things. One, our own sin and mortality, the reality of our debt. We try consciously to come to grips with the fact that, hey, it's big and unpayable, and we've got to take our eyes off of everybody else and just realize we're all going to be cellmates in the same place, at least if we got what we deserved. But what else? It's a 40-day season of time in which we're consciously entering into the sufferings of our suffering Savior, the one who suffered infinitely as the infinite God-man to pay the infinite price that every single one of us owes. It's amazing. And what should be the end result of those entering in? It should be an ever-increasing love for the Lord as we realize our depravity and His goodness to us. So I want to challenge you guys to enter into the Lenten season. If you missed it on Wednesday, you can enter in today. I want you to grab one of the handouts that we've got. I think they're back at the Information Center. It's the printout, really, of the two pages that we've got on our website, so you can also just go to the website. And I want you to consider how it is that you can engage in the Lenten season. And first of all, what can you voluntarily deprive yourself of? Again, 40 days corresponds to the 40 days in the wilderness, which are emblematic of his deprivations. You see, he was deprived, even unto death, that we might have life. That's the idea. And so you find a thing that you would ordinarily partake in in some way, shape, or form, and you say, you know what, for 40 days I'm not going to do that, and when I want to, I'm going to spend that time considering my Savior and all of the many far greater things that He was deprived of for me. So then, first of all, what can you voluntarily deprive yourself of during Lent? And then secondly... What can you do for Lent? So I'm giving something up and I'm taking something on. I'm going to pour out my love for my God by pouring out love practically in service for one of my fellow creatures, for some other human being. So take up the challenge, if you would, and consider in these 40 days the cost to Jesus to be able to say to us, and this is what he says if you have faith in him, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you um, for the stories of your word. God, for the way that you have written them and attuned them to our hearts. For the characters that we find. For the way that you relate. Lord, we thank you for this precious, precious woman who found a new place and a new identity and a new life, who broke and forsook the emblem of her former life, having found herself a daughter of the King through faith in you. 
God, I pray that you would call us to that kind of faith and to that kind of love, to that kind of an awareness of the fact that, you know what? Our debt, infinite, unpayable. And Lord, to an awareness of the love of the Father that he sacrificed the infinite Son that our infinite price might be forever paid. Lord, transform our identity by that and make us more than merely intrigued, moved in our mind, and people who are willing to kind of interact with you according to our own schedules, according to our own ambitions, according to our own plans and purposes, according to our own mission. Lord, let us go all in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.